It's a podcast-heavy week here at Baseball America and BaseballAmerica.com. John Manuel and J.J. Cooper back with you again. Second time today. The playoffs just got us talking a lot, J.J. We, we talk a lot. Normally, we decided to record it and share it with people. And now, we uh, unusual for us here. Usually, at BA, we think we're just so special. We don't guess. We don't need no stinking guests. But today, uh, we do have a couple of guests uh, on the line. Uh, with us from Cleveland, uh, very uh, happy to have Brad Grant, scouting director, of the Cleveland Indians join us and also joined by his assistant. Uh, you, we're in his old office here at Baseball America, our conference room, where Clint Longenecker used to just take over and uh, one man covering the draft with ridiculous energy and passion. And uh, okay, to, like I said, I was going to get for Clint talking about Clint. So very happy to have Clint as a guest here on the podcast. But Brad, thank you for joining us uh, on a busy, busy weekend in Cleveland. Thank you guys for having us. It's exciting to, uh, to be on here, and it's, uh, I'm sure a thrill for Clint. <laughs> I bet it is. Uh, the, the, the reason we wanted to have you guys on was just uh, what we thought. I don't know how uh, special or how rare it is to happen, but we thought it was neat that you guys brought in all your scouts. Uh, I guess it was all but two scouts in the organization who were honored on the field before the game last night. And Brad, maybe you could just explain kind of the genesis of that idea, uh, how often maybe that happens elsewhere, and uh, has the industry, uh, has the, have the Indians done this before where in past playoff games you guys were able to honor uh, your scouts on the field? Sure. I mean, it, uh, it, it was great. It, it actually went beyond just our scouting staff. So it was our amateur scouting staff, our international scouting staff, and then our player development staff as well. Um, and the genesis of it came from Chris Antonetti, uh, and, and Mike Chernoff, and then obviously the, with the Dolans' full support of it, um, that's how the whole thing came about. So the Dolans flew all of our scouts in, all of our uh, development staff in, our international scouts in, their significant others and family um, for the opportunity. And then we had 75 people down on the field last night, uh, you know, 20 minutes before the game start. And wow. just to see, yeah, just to see the, they came out through the elephant doors out in left field, um, and walked down the line and then lined up right behind home plate in front of the script Indians and, to, you know, to see the scouts' faces just to walk out there and then walk by the dugout and, and see the players and uh, that they had a part in drafting and then our development staff to be part of that and see the players that they had a large part in developing was um, really cool. It was, it was a pretty amazing moment. I mean, you look at it, we had 20 players on our roster last night that um, have been developed from within. Um, and it's been time with our player development staff. So to walk to walk them down, walk them out, and, and have them see that and have them have the chance to go through that was a, a really special thing and a tribute to Chris and, and to the Dolans for, for putting it all together. Brad, one thing that also strikes me with that is, is that this is one of the things I always find fascinating, fascinating about the playoffs is, is that there's also still stuff going on. Like, this right. is the goal. This is the goal that you have, you know, obviously all year, every year, is, is to get to this point where the Major League Club is playing in the playoffs, playing for a World Series title. But at the same time, you obviously also have instructs going on. You have, you know, the AFL. We're not that many weeks away from there will be a big scouting event in Jupiter. How do you all find kind of the balance? Like, I mean, I guess there, there obviously are some people who... I, was everyone able to get there, or is there some, no, you know, were you able to shut down Instructs, you know, because Instructs is wrapping up, or how does that all kind of work for you guys to be looking ahead and working for everything you have to be doing long-term, but at the same time getting the chance to be there, participate, enjoy what really is 
what you're working 365 days a year to get to? Yeah, great question. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that. so we drop everything, you know, <laughs> to have this opportunity and to, to have our staff be able to come in and, and to enjoy this. I mean, it it's special. We weren't able to have everybody, you know, our, our pro staff is still out and advancing right now uh, and doing those things. And they've had a large impact, too, on, on our roster with the trades that we've been able to make and the free agents we've signed and the waivers claims that we've made. Um, and, and we still had part of our development staff in uh, good year, but hopefully we'll continue to play here through October, and those guys will get a chance to enjoy it as well and a chance to partake in it. I've had another scouting director put it to me this way, which I thought was a clever way to put it. He said his goal every year is is to not be able to go to Jupiter because right. if he doesn't go to Jupiter, it's because you know his team's deep in the playoffs where it's like, well, I'm not leaving that to go to Jupiter. Is that? I mean, that again, I I don't want to overemphasize, but really. This is the payoff for everything you guys do in many ways, is it not? Absolutely. The best thing we did this year was cancel instructional league meetings. <laughs> for the last seven years, and to be able to say we're not going to instructional league this year was a great feeling. Um, to be able to, to, to push that off and bring these guys to Cleveland instead of the good year. It is pretty cool. And I, the other thing that struck me is uh, very rare is to have the scout, as you mentioned, as you're talking, scouting and player development there on the field together. I mean, usually these things are siloed, are they not? You guys have scouting meetings. I'm going to guess you don't regularly have scouting meetings with player development staff. There might be a day maybe on a backfield, I would say, in, in uh, spring training when things are getting started maybe, but how often do both departments get on the field or get in a room together, not to mention on the field together? That, I think that's a special part about what we do and about who we are, you know, and the culture here with the Indians is – uh, is that crossover? It's a, it, it truly is a collaborative approach to it. If you look at our success right now, it's it's a collective success. It every department has had influence on on our roster. Um, every every scouting department, you know, amateur, pro, international, and and our development our development staff has done an unbelievable job of getting our players better um, and putting them in a position to to have the success. And we do have that crossover here where we do interact and when we do bring a lot of people in for the draft from development and a lot of scouts go out to instructionally to work with development. So the crossover here is pretty unique in, in the game and pretty pretty special. There really aren't any silos in what we try to do. I'm just thinking, uh, uh, you know, one of the examples of that, I imagine, uh, one of the more prominent examples of that is Jason Kipnis of a guy they kept talking about last night. Here's a guy who was an outfielder in college. I know he played some second base in the Cape. But was I guess so? Your first year scouting director was two thousand eight, correct? So two thousand nine, uh, your second draft with Jason Kipnis uh, with a second round pick that year. Um, he kind of another one of those guys who drafted as an outfit. I mean, you're obviously everyone would like the bat, but the player development staff going to player development say, hey, here's this college outfielder. We want to make him a second baseman. We think that's where he's going to fit. Is he kind of one of those success stories that you talk about as far as putting those two things together? Absolutely. Um, I think as as we went through scouting Jason at, at Arizona State, you know, you always got the tweener profile in, in the outfield. And we always felt like he could be an everyday outfielder if we, if we wanted him to do that. Um, but we did a lot of research. We did a lot of things. Paul, Paul Kogan, uh, our scout at the time, actually knew, actually watched him work out at second base um, at Arizona State one day. So we knew that there was that chance uh, to be able to, to convert him. We drafted him based on his ability, based on his, uh, his ability to play the outfield, and based on his bat. Um, we knew that we knew he could hit, and we knew we could hit with power. Um, but we also had an inclination that he'd be able to move to second. 
we did we did that in instructional league. Robbie Thompson, Anthony Madrano, our development staff, Travis Fryman, Johnny Goro, those guys were really uh, involved in that process of, of, of shifting them into over into the infield, um, which is a really hard transition to make. Not many players can make that, and it's a tribute to our development staff and also a tribute to what, what Kip has done on his own and the work that he's put into that, the extra time he's put in that to, to really uh, make that happen. When you say that, one of the things that strikes me is, is we talk – you know, a lot here, you know, and we, we talk, when we talk to teams, they talk about, you know, okay, is this guy a profile guy? Is this guy a profile guy? And one of the things that jumps out year after year, we tell, you know, is this a profile guy on a championship team? But one of the things that strikes me is, is that when you look at how teams are constructed, when you get to the playoffs, it's not necessarily always about that you have a guy at each pro, a profile guy at each position. It seems to me, it strikes me that one of the things that you all have to do is figure out Maybe sometimes it's not a guy who fits the profile, but he fits that kind of what your team needs. Mm-hmm. Hey, how much is there that balance between, especially because, again, you're on the scouting side of scouting for the profile and also versus scouting for what a guy does and how maybe that fits in with a team because, you're, because this is what he does, even if it's not profile for that position. Yeah, so obviously we have to do that on the amateur side because we're looking five years ahead or, you know, at the time. Um, so we, we have to profile for the position, and, and that's how we have to look at things. I think what uh, makes Terry Francona a, an unbelievable manager and what he's done with our team is he plays the player's strengths, and he puts those players in positions to be able to succeed. Um, and I think that's why you see those guys having so much success in what they're doing. It's not the 1995 and 97 teams that we had here before where you had all-stars at every position. <laughs> um, team that gets the most out of their ability and the most out of their strengths, and that's, a, that's a direct tribute to, to Tito and his coaching staff. You mean, you mean Manny Ramirez wasn't a profile seven-hole hitter? I mean, like, <laughs> what are we talking about? I mean, those are just so crazy to go back and look at those teams. It's really just like, what? Wait a minute, what? Uh, it's just funny you bring that up. Those teams uh, were just beyond what we're supposed to be able to comprehend offensively, especially 95. Uh, it's a Baseball yeah. America podcast with, with Brad Grant of the Cleveland Indians joining us. Um, another player, Brad, that uh, you know to me is squarely in the middle of what you guys are doing is Tyler Naquin, and uh, this is a guy where I'm gonna guess that Baseball America was probably not complimentary of this pick <laughs> that you made, uh, whether it was at the time or since then. Uh, now Ted Cahill in our office carries the Tyler Naquin banner. I, mean, I think if he ever gets tatted up, it's gonna be a Naquin tat on a bicep somewhere, which would be interesting for the Cahillionaire. That'd be an interesting look for Teddy to have. But, but yeah. he, he's the king of the Naquin fan club uh, in our office. But the rest of us have always, I think, been fairly skeptical of that pick. Um, and, and were there times where Tyler's development maybe was as a college position player, first-round pick, usually those guys we've seen in, from last year's draft, he certainly didn't follow the Benintendi development plan of, uh, I'm going to be in college, I'm going to get to the big leagues within a year. I'll be in the big leagues a year after people weren't 100% sure if I was eligible for the draft. Tyler's path has been a little slower. Um, if you maybe you could talk about a little bit about his process and and his development, and if his slower development made you guys question your process, or has he kind of has it become what you thought he would eventually be? Yeah, no, uh, we never questioned our process, and, and never questioned. We didn't question the pick. We thought it was really good. Um, it, this is more of a tribute to Tyler. So in in college, Tyler could hit, and Tyler had tools. And we knew that. And Tyler had an advanced routine um, and an unbelievable understanding of what he was doing. 
Um, so when you look at the tool set for, and like we talked about too, the profile of, of a guy in college, Tyler fit all that to be able to play center field and play it in an impact way and then brought speed and, and hit ability and a, you know, a lot of intangibles um, to the table. And I think some of those may have gotten overlooked because he was playing right field at the time. And right. some of those may have been overlooked because he didn't have power, but power develops as, as guys get, especially good hitters and elite hitters, those guys develop power as it comes. Um, and I think the, the biggest thing about Tyler and what he he's done is through his minor league career, he was okay failing to make adjustments. Um, and he was mentally strong enough and had the ability to look forward and know that failure was okay and looked at that as a challenge to improve. Um, and when the strikeouts came and those type of things, it didn't bother him. He knew that he was doing the right things to improve to get to where he needed to be to be a major league player. And I think that's the, like, the unique thing about Tyler where most guys, um, that would weigh on him and they would have a really hard time and it, it didn't affect Tyler at all. And that really, that last aspect, and I'm, you know, my son will be 12 next week and I keep telling him all the time, don't be afraid to swing and miss every once in a while because you're, you're trying to impact the baseball. Don't be afraid to fail. Baseball's supposed to teach you that. I, I guess really that's part of that aspect really is the scouting of the makeup, right, with, with Tyler Naquin. Was that, that's an element that beyond the tools that you have to know the, the player, you have to get to know the player to know that he would respond that way. It sounds like you guys did get to know him that way. Yeah, so it, 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 every player is going to hit that, that failure. Every player is going to hit that, that threshold where it's, okay, now am I going to move on based on my talent? All the players we bring into our minor league system are very talented players. Once they hit that level, is it talent's going to let them continue on or are they going to face that, cha- that, that challenge and that adversity and work to get better uh, and allow that opportunity? And that's what, that's what Tyler's got. He's got that you know, that mindset to be able to say, okay, I see this as a, as a challenge to get better. Um, so I'll, I'll go through the adversity um, and I'll work really hard and I'm, I'm going to spend, a, you know, the whole off season at Goodyear and just go at it and get stronger with Cody Anderson and, and go at it and make sure that I get better um, instead of just relying on I've always been good. Another uh, scouting story that really kind of fascinates me from your team is, is Cody Allen. Uh, you know, he was the second fastest guy from that draft class to, to make it to the big leagues. And he didn't make it there just to kind of stop by. He made it there, <laughs> settled in, and, and kind of really took on a, a pretty significant role very quickly. But what jumps out about it is that this is not a guy. Usually the, the first guys to reach a, you know, from a draft class, you look from last year's class, it's all the guys who were the, the top first-round picks. That wasn't Cody Allen. When you guys drafted him, I mean, did did you guys see him as someone who could move this fast? Kind of, you know, how did this kind of, or was this something where he comes in and, and you guys realize, as much as you guys were obviously high on him, this guy's even better maybe than than even you guys expected when you y'all drafted him? Um, yeah, he. Well, we were fortunate with Cody. We drafted him in 2010 out of junior college, and Mike Soper uh, was down in in Florida at the time and spent a lot of time with him and. He was coming off Tommy John, coming off an injury, and you know we were close to signing him. Um, came up a little bit short, and then I think in the end it was the best thing for Cody too because he wasn't really sure he was ready um, and healthy enough to come pitch. So he went to High Point uh, in in 2011, um, pitched there, and then we were fortunate enough to draft him a second time. Um, got lucky to do it, and once we did it, we knew that he could move through the through quickly through the system if we kept him in the bullpen. Um, that breaking ball, whatever you want to curve it, call it curveball, hard slur, whatever it is, is really nasty and really yeah. good. And he always had that. 
Um, so it was similar to, you know, he, he, we knew he could move quickly. We knew we could move fast, keep him in the bullpen and let him go uh, and get him there. And, and he's another guy that has that mindset and he's able to face adversity and not let it bother him. That's another one, uh, Brad, that we talk about here all the time when we work on the prospect handbook. We used to like, I remember having this conversation, no, we're not going to say breaking ball. It's like either a curve or a slider, no breaking ball. We can call it a slurve. But now the more we research it or work on it, it's like sometimes it's just a breaking ball. <laughs> how, much yeah. do you guys, how much do you guys focus on that? Is that something you guys discuss as a group? We focus on swing and miss. So if it, <laughs> if it breaks, we don't really care how. If a, if a hitter swings and misses against it, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that is a lesson to, look, to live by uh, for us to learn uh, down the line. And it's just funny. I'm, another, I think it's a good way to wrap up is you know, Andrew Miller seeing – Andrew Miller deployed so early last night. You talked about uh, Tito's, uh, as a manager, putting guys in position to succeed. And uh, the position for uh, Andrew Miller to succeed last last night was the fifth inning, which is not what he's used to necessarily. But he said he was number one on our draft board in 2006 at Baseball America. And I'm looking at y'all's 2006 draft, and it's just amazing to me how these careers all spread out from the draft. And that 2006 draft for the Indians – Kind of be pretty good draft. Stephen Wright, who's on the in the other dugout. I think he's hurt, but he's in the other dugout. Was your second pick that year? Uh, I don't have a good Stephen Wright impression, but I used to have a Stephen Wright joke about him, where you know they're interstate. Why do they call him interstate highways in Hawaii? Where he was, he's a California guy. But anyway, that joke doesn't work uh, without the impression. Chris Archer, fifth round pick that year uh, by the Tribe. Uh, pretty good draft pick. Obviously, we won't get into the. We won't get into what happened afterwards. Like Vinny Pistano got to the big leagues for you guys out of that draft. I mean, do you guys ever sit there and look back at a draft? That how far back do you guys go when you're trying to tweak your process, work on your process? Do you go back ten years, or how, how far uh, back do you go before you really, uh, when you're doing research on these kind of things to improve your process going forward, or to to tweak it or to learn more? Uh, how far back does your do you send Clint into the archives? Uh, and others uh, to go back looking uh, for for improving going back in the future is, too, is ten years too far back or is that, or is that about the right amount of time to really uh, study the arc of a of, of what worked in a draft and what didn't? Yeah, you forgot Josh Tomlin or Game Three starter in that draft too. So. <laughs> He's in that same class. There he is, nineteenth round, Texas Tech. Clint pulled that one out for you. <laughs> <laughs> He's right next to Pistano, and I missed him. He's pushing. He's pushing lists too many quickly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, to answer your question, um, we we definitely go back. We definitely research. We ten years is usually the the right amount. Um, there's analytical Sky Andercheck and, and his group in here do unbelievable studies for us uh, and do a lot to help us better understand uh, our our past and then uh, help apply it too in the future. Um, so we do a really good job of. of systematically making decisions in the draft now based on a whole lot of information that's not trying to be applied by one person. Um, It's not my responsibility to have to know, you know, 10 past drafts and how those affect it and then how this draft is shaping out with terms of who goes where and all those types of things. We have people that do an unbelievable job that help us, uh, you know, kind of take the emotion and bias out of our decisions and make a systematic decision that's best for the organization. I just I found that out this issue. I tried to write a draft report cards for five years ago. 2011 Indians draft got an A, by the way. Francisco Lindor kind of made it, made that right. pretty, made that kind of easy. So, um, but the Red Sox also got an A for that 2011 draft. So this this 
series is a 2011 draft uh, cornucopia of delights between uh, Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley, Francisco Lindor, uh, there are a few others uh, that that made it up, and, and then Cody Allen, like you mentioned. So it's a pretty Cody Allen, Cody Anderson. Yeah, there were a bunch of them. Is Sean time. Armstrong on your postseason roster? Not, yeah, but there's another one. Yep, that's another one. So the, there were, um, so there were uh, th- that that that's what makes it. That that's how we still look at it, and I'm sure as a scouting director, you look at it that way sometimes too. But uh, ultimately, like Herman Edwards said, you play to win the game. So uh, that's what. You, and this is, the, I guess, the last part is you guys are there's a help. Uh, Helplessness as a scout, I imagine you really can only watch. There's not a whole lot you can do uh, in a game. You just kind of turn back into a fan this time of year, right? Well, those guys were definitely fans last night. So when Perez hit the home run and Lindor hit the home run, that's you know Mike Soper. Those are those are his guys, and uh, our guys were up there. I think chanting soap, 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 <laughs> and then you know to see Kipnis hit one, and you know, and then Bob Mir with Chisinau was up there, and you know going crazy, and then Cody come in, and you know so that part of it to see your work to see that effort to see all those miles driven and all those nights on the road all come to fruition and have all of our guys there that that was the most enjoyable part and that part was really special that's pretty fun the first time i met soap was at a duke game in 2005 it was florida state against uh, duke it was a rain delay i think soap was working for the cubs at that time um yeah but he uh he had in his wallet he had a whole uh a cast of a Moneyball movie that he'd he'd mapped out. I believe he had Wesley Stipes playing Billy O, and I'm I remember he had John Turturro playing uh, J.P. Ricciardi, which I thought was inspired. So, if only they had the uh, ass soap when they made that movie. Um, pretty, right. good, pretty good movie as it turned out. I love that soap had that. I guess because he'd worked for the A's in the past as well. So, uh, uh, good he, he, good egg of the day, uh, and cool for you guys to be able to enjoy that and. Now you got to sit through a few more of them. So I hope you have to sit through as many as possible for your sake. Uh, it's going to be a, all those games are so tense just to watch. Can't imagine when you're watching them and you have something invested. So Brad uh, and Clint and the silent research partner in the back, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time and, uh, and a busy time of year. And uh, go get them at 4.30, I suppose, and uh, four hours plus. And uh, good luck the rest of the weekend. Thank you, John. Thanks, JJ. Thanks, guys. All right, so for Brad Grant and J.J. Cooper, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you next time. And Clint Longenecker. We'll see you on the next BA podcast. So long, everybody.